بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته A very warm welcome to our program Revival in Motion It is a weekly program where we go back to the basics and Last week and in this week's program, we're going back to the basics about a crucial topic. This is a topic about Muslim women, divorce, and their Islamic rights. Our guest last week and today in this two-part series is Ma'alima Farhana Haturani, mentor, educator, and public personality, who will share with us more on this topic. In last week's program, she addressed the financial rights of a divorced woman, especially concerning alimony and child support. She also talked more with us about what social support structures are in place to assist divorced women in coping with emotional and financial challenges. And lastly, we went down the route of understanding how cultural or if cultural attitudes within Islamic societies impact the social status and acceptance of divorced women. Today on the program, we continue understanding more about uh, divorce, supporting divorced women within the framework of Islamic teachings. We talk about the challenges that divorced Muslim women might encounter when considering or seeking remarriage. And um, inshallah, we also look at Islamic law and address the topic of custody issues or custody arrangements rather for children and further factors on this. So we welcome Mu'alima Farhana for joining us on today's program and we head off straight into our first question for today. And here we asked Mu'alima to elaborate on the role that family and community play in supporting a divorced woman. Take a listen to this. Let's focus on family. Family, more than the community, play a major major role in this dynamic. They're the ones that are going to have to step up before we expect the community to step up because this is your family. And before anyone else, um, sadaqah has to be extended towards your own family. That is the role. Okay? Before we give sadaqah to everybody else, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, stand on your own family. That is your first sadaqah. So that doesn't just include money. Right? But that also includes being emotionally and mentally and physically accessible to people who are struggling. And unfortunately, we find that in today's cases, um, women who are being divorced or have gone, gone through a divorce, and um, you hear this, okay, it's very, very common. Um, it's so difficult, I think. A lot of women will agree with me that it is harder to readjust going back home, that is to your maiden home, than it is to actually sustain a bad relationship, unfortunately. And there are so many women, countless of women, who are choosing abuse from their spouses as opposed to going back home and being made to feel as if she's a burden that has returned. Now, I'd like to ask our Muslim communities and I'd like to ask our, our Indian Muslim parents, but I don't think only that it's an Indian thing, I do think it's other, it's other cultures as well. Um, it's not in our black culture. 
I have to make mention of this, Appa. One day, and I know I'm going off topic here. One day, I, att I attended a um, empowerment um, event, and uh, there were there was a, a group of uh, uh, you know beautiful uh, black Muslim sisters amongst us, and they were shocked to hear some of the challenges that we face as divorced women. And they were like, "This is taboo. We've never heard of stuff like this. We we don't face these challenges." And I was like, "Wow." She says, and they, would, they all were unanimous, that um, if they get divorced in their, uh, situa in, in their community, um, men will be knocking on their doors to demand them. And that is exactly how the Sahaba radiallahu anhu And that would say something. That should say something to us. Okay? So I'm going to ask our parents that if you have a divorced daughter and you've done this to her, where you made her feel that she's now a burden and that your doors are now closed and that after she's been married and that she's been divorced, she's a burden and she belongs now on the street. And yes, they use some really, really ugly terms. Okay, I've heard some really horrible terms being used on, on divorced girls from their family members, from their parents, right? That you belong on the street, you're no longer my responsibility. Um, you don't belong back in my home. You shouldn't be coming back home. All of those things. Why? From where did you learn this? From where? Because Islam didn't teach it to you. So where did you learn it? Where did you adopt this mentality from? Now more than ever, a divorced woman, your divorced child, your divorced daughter, even your divorced son, okay, even your divorced son, requires your support more than any time that is ever going to require it. The emotional support structure that is required by a, uh, a divorced person is, I think, not spoken about enough. More than the you know, financial support structure, the emotional support structure. When you emerge from a divorce, it's not always hunky-dory for everyone. While it may be a, a you know, relief to be out of that toxic space, sometimes it's not always the case. Sometimes divorce happens um, suddenly. It happens um, in a manner in which, you know, some, someone just uttered it in haste, right? Without even thinking. Three times. They uttered it. Because we have enough situations like this. People play around with it. People use it as a trump card to uh, manipulate their spouses and whatever it is. So they use it willy-nilly. And you find that this girl has to go home. And it's not always that, you know, sometimes... Uh, <clears throat> It's been years of abuse and this and that, whatever it is. Sometimes it happens, like I said, very suddenly and very unwarranted as well. And what happens in that case? She's going to require so much of support from her family. Okay? You are going to, you are going to have to be there for her emotionally. You're going to have to show her um, extra love, extra attention, extra empathy, 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 the biggest thing. The biggest thing that is required from our communities and our family structures with regards to this is to inculcate a sense of empathy within us, anyone that is struggling. And when that someone is within our own, our own blood, our family, our sister, our brother, our, our daughter, our niece, our nephew, anybody, show empathy. Don't judge. That is so unnecessary. She doesn't or he doesn't need that at that moment. All they require is for you to envelope them with your care, your understanding, and your protection. Let them know that they are going to be okay. Let them know that they are not alone. 
through this experience and through this journey because it's going to be a difficult journey and i promise you people will not understand it until it happens to them unfortunately as ugly as that sounds and we don't wish this upon our worst enemy but you will never understand how painful this experience is until it happens to you but don't wait for it to happen to you don't wait for it don't wait for allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to, to look at you and look at how you are negatively hurting someone with all of um, the apprehension that you have towards a divorced person and says, okay, so the lesson that I need to teach you is that I need for this, you need for this to happen to you, for you to understand and for you to show empathy and for you to be merciful towards someone who is going through a difficult time. Don't let that happen. Don't let life teach you lessons. Because like, I, like we've said in the beginning of this interview, our marriages are not granted to us. Someone can get divorced at the age of 20, someone can get divorced at the age of 65. So don't let that lesson be taught to you because you lacked the understanding. Because it's not just a test for them. When your daughter comes home, when your niece comes home, your son comes home, right? It's not just a test for them, it is a test for you as parents as well. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is putting that in your, in your path for a reason. He wants to see how is it that you treat this person. Who is in need of you? And remember a divorced woman, especially in her idda, she is entirely and completely in the mercy of Allah. Completely. And if you are, are oppressing her in any way, emotionally, mentally, you are sinful. You are in the anger of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because this woman is in the mercy of Allah. This man is in the mercy of Allah. He may not be in idda, but he's definitely hurting and he's going through something. So if you're showing a lack of empathy and you are uh, choosing to be uh, abusive and you are choosing to be uh, negatively impactful towards this person, then you are, you are a form of oppression towards them. So it is very important for families to stand up. It is very important for, for families to show up for a divorced uh, woman to surround her and to, like I said, envelop her with empathy, with care, with protection. Um, see what it is that you can be assistance of um, in that first initial stages of it. Uh, it is so difficult to regulate emotions. I cannot even begin to describe how difficult it is. And then you have women who have to forget all of that and have to put one foot in front of the other and still look after their children. Who is her support structure? Because she has to be the support structure for her children. But who is backing her up? Who is assisting her? Who is she falling back on? Who is he falling back on? Nobody, right? So be that support structure for them. It is sadaqah upon you. You will be immensely rewarded because anybody who assists anybody in the times of hardship earns the favor of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Alhamdulillah. Our next topic that we worked on was challenges. And we asked Mualima to share with us more on the challenges that divorced women face when they seek to remarry. Now we know that culturally in some communities there are unfair and illogical taboos placed on this. So we asked Mualima to elaborate on this so we could have a better understanding whether we ourselves are in the situation or our loved ones and so that we can be Muslim societies that are uh, supporting and practicing within the Islamic framework and not allowing culture to become the religion and the way that we address topics such as divorce in our communities. 
Well, the first struggle is um, finding someone that actually wants to marry a divorced woman. Um, so with the whole stigma that is generally attached to a divorced woman. Uh, so that will be her first challenge because already she's, lying, she's fighting against the, uh, the, the narrative. Um, so that's the first, uh, first struggle that I need to let go. Um, you know, how is it that I have to live my life <clears throat> without the stigma, without being known as a problematic woman, without being assumed that the marriage had fallen apart because of my play or non-play in the marriage? How is it that I, you know, can um, help people or force people to see that I'm still the same individual, I'm still a good human being, I'm not some wretched person. So that is the first challenge. Um, the second challenge would be that, like I've said, you know, she has children, you'll find a lot of men, unfortunately, don't want to deal uh, with someone. And someone said this online, like I said before, that um, men don't want to deal with the burden of a divorced woman's children. And my response to that was, <clears throat> while it is his choice whether or not he wants to deal with that dynamic or not, right? It is unfair to call the children in this dynamic a burden, okay? If men lack the, the ability to marry a divorced woman with children and a sister, that's on him, okay? But do not for one second think that you know what, uh, children from divorced homes are a burden and you know, men don't want to deal with that. That's upon the individual, right? But this is a challenge that we do face. The reality of, of it is that there are just not enough men willing to marry women who have children because they lack the ability to deal with that dynamic, okay? It's not because the children are a burden or anything like that. It's because we, we, have, we are living in, um, in a society where men just lack the ability to be men. As, as as ugly as that sounds, right? Because in the time of Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, they were not faced with these challenges, right? Were they lesser of men? Absolutely not. They were the epitome of manhood. They were the epitome of masculinity. And I've said this many times on this program, okay? Uh, that the Sahaba radiallahu anhu, Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, were all the epitome of masculine men and if you look at their behavior and if you look at what they've what they have done in their lives the woman that they've married and for what reasons they married those women there was so much of hikmah in all of that but unfortunately our men of today um i don't know uh, i just heavily subscribed to perceptions and the mentalities of modern day society that are wholly un-islamic uh, then you have a woman, like I said, who has age. You find a lot of women who get divorced, um, you know, a little bit later in her life. Um, and, yeah, you know, men want younger women because younger women are more beautiful, more energetic, um, can bear them children. Uh, so, yeah, you get men who will value these things. And so age would be against as well. And then you obviously have the unwarranted and the unfair stigma of divorce that women bear most of the brunt of, which is totally unfair, totally unfair, right? So those are just some of the uh, the challenges that women would encounter. I remember, <laughs> I remember a man uh, saying to me, you know, a lot of women will get divorced, right? And I 
And I tell women, take time for yourself. Like, don't just jump to another relationship. And because of all of these factors that I have just said to you and that I've just mentioned, you'll find women who will jump to another relationship almost immediately after either, which is dangerous because depending on what the previous experience was in that relationship, uh, a woman who just runs to get married again will be stuck in a cycle of uh, bad behavior and will repeat the same um, problems uh, that were that that she had experienced in in her in her previous relationship, right? And I tell people and I tell women, take some time. Okay, you don't have to get married immediately because it is very very necessary for you to have time for yourself to heal, to uh, recover from anything. You know, if there were if it, if it was an abusive space, she has to take time to heal from all of that before she jumps into another relationship. And yeah, I've had men who, you know, have, and I think a lot of women will correlate with me and will resonate with this year, is that, um, you know, when we were in our early 30s and we said no to uh, marriage proposals because we were busy with our self-healing journey and things like that, which was necessary, which was absolutely necessary. But men who didn't understand that then projected all of their... Um, opinions and said, yeah, well, you know what, when you are in your 40s, don't expect anybody to marry you when you are in your late 30s and your shelf life has expired, don't expect anyone. Like, yeah, these are the unnecessary negative uh, things that are a challenge to women when it comes to remarrying. It's almost as if she shouldn't take time for herself to heal. She should immediately find a spouse. She should immediately get into um, into another relationship because I don't know. It seems as if marriage is what defines a successful woman in our Muslim community. I don't know why, okay? I don't know why that is, but it is what it is. And the minute you say, no, I don't want to marry, I want to, um, I want to be single for some time because I need to figure things out for myself, automatically you assume to be a problematic person. You are assumed to be a feminist who is against the... Uh, uh, the structure of nikah, which is all all raw, which is all not not correct. So, yeah, these were just some of the personal experiences that I faced, and the challenges that I faced as a divorced woman. And I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure a lot of divorced women out there who are listening to this podcast will resonate um, with these challenges. And then, not to mention. Not to mention that even if a man is interested in divorced woman, very seldom will his parents and his mother back him up on that. I've always, I've always thought about this, that, and, and I've asked men this. I said, you know what, you approach me with, a, but tell me how will your mother feel when you, when you have to, um, uh, what you call this, submit this to her and say, you know what, mom, I'm interested in a woman, and but she's divorced and she's unmarried. How many mothers are willing to accept daughter-in-laws like that? Not many, not many. So we require a massive shift in our mentalities, uh, in the way we think and the way we perceive success is. Now, one topic that comes up often and with great concern is about custody arrangement. If there are children within that marriage, so we asked Walima to address this topic of how does Islamic law address custody arrangements for children 
and to share with us more about the factors within this topic. Let's listen. Okay, so generally the Islamic consensus is that the child has um, the hak of upbringing, the hak of maintenance by the father, and the nurturing hak in custody by the mother. So basically a mother has full custody of a minor in the case of a male until he's seven years old and in the case of a female until she's nine years old. And the mother receives the rights of custody based upon five conditions. And that is she's clear that she's not a slave. Alhamdulillah, we no longer live in this, uh, we don't live in this times anymore. Uh, that she's an adult, she is fully an adult, meaning she has the ability to think for herself in an adult manner, okay, and that she's obviously mature. She's sane, she's trustworthy, and that she is a capable parent, meaning she is uh, fully capable of raising her children and taking care of them on a day-to-day -day basis. And uh, her custody rights will be forfeited if she remarries because what happens now is that if they are, uh, if she has a daughter, uh, her husband is not a mahram to her daughter, okay? But if she doesn't have any daughters, then her custody rights remains in debt. Um, another woman, uh, there is another woman to take care of the child in terms of it is less of a remuneration. So say for instance, you get a woman who is demanding high maintenance right and the ex-spouse the ex-husband is unable to pay this maintenance and so what he does is he says he gets married right and thus his wife says i can take care of these children right and you don't and you are not and you won't be uh and you won't be liable to pay this high maintenance for whatever it is right and then in that case if he goes to uh, to the court and even in islamic court right if he goes to the court and he says i've remarried um, and my wife is able to take care of my children without me having to pay this remuneration because I'm unable to afford it any longer, then her, her custody rights can be forfeited, okay? So it is imperative and it is very important for women to understand um, this year that she can, uh, her custody rights can be revoked if she's being wholly unreasonable with her maintenance demands upon the children um, and then it can also be revoked if she's a neglectful parent and if she is living a life of an open sinner meaning she's just living a really immoral lifestyle that can affect the overall upbringing of the child that is she's harming the child in terms of his islamic environment okay then uh, a father can say uh, he can file for custody in this case and custody can be given right and in, in islamic a court if he prove if he if he proves that his child is in an environment that is not in his best interest or her best interest islamically it will be immediately uh, be revoked okay um, the father is uh, at all times responsible for the maintaining of the children uh, and he will maintain his daughter up until she is married and he will maintain his uh, son until he's of the age or until he's of the capacity where he is able to earn in uh, his own income and um, if a woman does not have a home to provide for her children and then the um, the ex-spouse is responsible islamically to provide a home uh, for the ex-wife and the children when do children have uh, 
a right or when do children get the, um, the autonomy to choose which parent they want to actually be with, uh, that is after the age of, uh, after they've earned puberty, right? So after they've become balik, then they get uh, the decision where they are, where the, you know, they get to choose which parent they want to, uh, where, which parent they want to live with. Uh, what I want to talk about custody, uh, custody though, is um, if it is that, you know, uh, we obviously live in South Africa, so we don't, uh, we, our Islamic law doesn't apply unless, you know, um, a divorce case goes through the Jamiat as well as it being arbitrated um, under the guidance and then there's an agreement that has been signed upon both parties. But if they decide to go through, uh, you know, the legal system of South Africa, which is not in accordance with Islamic law, then, then too, uh, the mother gets uh, more rights than the father, right? And in the case where, you know, fathers do have do take their children away and things like that. that would all be dependent upon who can provide the child with a better support structure for the child right if it's the father and he proves his case then the father will get custody rights of the child and if it is the mother if it's a mother and if the child is a minor and maybe it's a baby then obviously mother gets more of a right okay but Generally, on both spectrums, there is an Islamic law as well as Islamic law, the mother gets first consideration in terms of custody. And then, um, yeah, you know, the, you, you get lots of other cases, then you get people who will then fight for custody in the courts based upon, I don't know, various, various uh, the scenarios and things like that there, which, I don't know, that would be an individualistic outcome that, um, you know, it will be handled accordingly, according to those things, right? Um, also, let's take, in, let's take for example, um, the children are now of the age of puberty, right? And in terms of Islamic law, they should go to the father or whatever the case is, right? But the father or the mother, right, are not emotionally regulated enough to take care of the children, then it is best for the children to be with the parent that is able to do that, right? And, you know, we live in a... Unfortunately, you have people who use the children as, you know, as ammunition against each other. Children often become collateral damage, and I think maybe we must talk about this while we are here. Remember, um, fathers have... Even though mothers get custody of their children, it is the help of the father to receive visitation rights towards his children, meaning he has, he should be given full access to his children, right? Rightful, uh, righteous people who fear Allah will not use their children to score points with each other and to hurt one another. Your children should not be collateral damage. Your children should not be the ones that are being used, right, to abuse each other. That is so wrong on so many levels. Not only are you harming one another, you are harming these children. And if you really, really love your children, you will not be putting them through that. A mature person will understand that they need to navigate in a manner that is most conducive towards their children. Um, you will only prevent a party from access to the children 
if that person is only going to contribute negatively to the child. So if, like we've mentioned, you know, a mother or a father is involved in a lifestyle that is wholly un-Islamic, that is very unhealthy, there are bad habits involved there, maybe one or both, one party is, uh, you know, uh, have addiction problems, have mental problems, have mental issues, all of those things, then in that case, it would make sense that, you know, to prevent or to rather restrict or limit the amount of access that party has towards the children. This is a discussion that, you know, I can rabbit hole because there's a lot of factors to consider when it comes to children and who gets custody and how and when and this and that and stuff like that there. But basically this is it and I hope I'm actually talking, I hope people understand this when it comes to uh, these discussions and how custody is, con uh, is considered. But a lot of the times people don't go through the courts and people don't go through the Islamic arbitration process, right? And they simply, you know, make their own decisions. And I hope that these couples, well, they're not couple, they're not a couple anymore. But I hope that these parents decide to navigate in a manner that is most conducive to the children, and that they don't involve their own personal problems with each other, and put the children in the mix and put the children in the middle of it. Please don't do that. That is just wrong. That is just wrong on many levels. Um, Islamically, it is wrong as well, because children have a right to both their parents. And if there is no valid reason for either party to be restricted from their children, it is un-Islamic to do so. It is wrong for you to do so. And if you are doing this, you are being, uh, you are, you are oppressing the other party. And dhulam is, an, is, 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 a, is a great offense in, um, in our deen. So let us not be from amongst those that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refers to as dhanimeen because you decided to be an unfair party with regards to custody, with regards to all of these things in terms of, you know, when it came to your divorce, let us not be part of the group of people who are known as dhanimeen. Dhulam can come in many ways and be very, very mindful in which manner you are being oppressive towards another human being and do not use your children to be that person. You know, I also want to add to this, because we don't speak a lot about this. We always speak about, you know, deadbeat fathers. And for those who don't understand who deadbeat fathers are, they are those type of, I don't like to even call them men, they are those type of male specimens who decide to walk away from their financial responsibilities towards their children in the hope of scoring points with their ex-wives. Okay? We talk a lot about them. I'm not sure if we talk enough about them, though, okay? But we, we don't often speak about the women who also withhold visitation and access to the children, also just to score points on their ex-spouses. I've spoken to a lot of people, you know, in the line of work, we've spoken to a lot of men who are in this position. It is so sad. It is so sad because you have fully capable men who love and adore their children and are going through depression, are unable to work, unable to do a lot of their normal basic things in life because they are pining for their children that their ex-wives have decided to restrict from. And for what reason? No reason. This is, 
this is a very sad case. If your children have a father that loves them, that is able to look after them, that is able to offer them a, a support, a home that is filled with love and nothing but goodness, why would you prevent your children from having access to that? Just so to appease your, your own um, resentment needs towards that man, that is very unfair, right? And if you are a man who is preventing maintenance from your children to appease your waning masculinity, because thus you are divorced from this woman, even more sad, because you are supposed to be the stronger party in this. As a man, you are supposed to be the stronger party. Maintenance is not something that a woman has uh, ordained upon you. Maintenance is something that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has ordained upon you. So when you are withholding finances, you are disobeying the laws of Allah, first and foremost. Right? And I think a lot of men need to reflect on that. What would be the reason when you stand in front of Allah? What would be the reason when Allah asks you about this? Because you will be questioned about this. Maintenance isn't a, um, a light matter. When you withhold maintenance, it's not a light matter. There is a hub that these children have upon you. So you're not only going to be answerable towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you're also answerable to those children because you are forfeiting the hak of your children upon you. And that alone is an offense of its own. Alhamdulillah, and we thank Mu'allima for the time that she has spent with us, sharing, preparing, and sharing that with us. Alhamdulillah, pertinent issues raised, and we pray that we all internalize the Islamic wisdom from this and apply this in our communities, homes, societies. Ameen, Ya Rabbi. May Allah make things easy for everyone. Ameen. I do understand from our producers that there may possibly be a part three to the series. And um, inshallah, we will update you on that um, in the following weeks. Our segment now turns to Islamic history. And today we understand or we ask a question and seek to understand why did Rasulullah come after Isa alayhi salam? So the first question that many people ask, and I often get asked this question in da'wah is, did Isa alayhi salam, did Jesus and Nabi Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam teach the same thing? Yes and no. It is true that both Isa alayhi salam and Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, as well as all true prophets from Adam, Nuh alayhi salam, etc., carried essentially the same message, Islam, monotheism, and submission to the will and guidance of Allah. However, the details were not identical, but varied to cope with the time and nation addressed. While Isa alayhi salam was sent specifically to the Israelites, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam was sent to all humanity. This was emphasized by Isa alayhi salam as well. In Matthew 15:24, he said, but he answered and said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In contrast, the Qur'an declares the universal message of Islam. The Qur'an says what means. In Surah Al-A'raf, Surah 7, Ayah 158, Say, O people, surely I am the messenger of Allah to you all, of whom the who, those or whose is the kingdom of the heavens and the earth. There is no God but He. 
He brings to life and causes to die. Therefore believe in Allah and his messenger, the illiterate prophet who believes in Allah and his words, and follow him so that you may walk in the right path. And in Surah Yusuf, Ayah 104, and you do not ask them for a reward for this, it is nothing but a reminder for all mankind. And Surah Al-Anbiya, Surah 21, Ayah 107, and we have not sent you, but as a mercy to the world. And like that, there are so many other such ayat within the Qur'an. Also, while the original message of Isa alayhi salam was distorted and deviated from Tawheed, monotheism, the message of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam was to stay valid and preserved to the end of time. While Isa alayhi salam's emphasis was on moral salvation and reform of the individual, with only a few rulings on marriage and divorce, etc., the final message of Islam brought a detailed comprehensive code dealing with all aspects of human life, personal, family, social, economic, political, and international. Isa alayhi salam stressed purifying the soul. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam was to build and maintain the model, individual, societal, and national. Isa alayhi salam repeatedly called to Allah the one God and warned those who ascribed partners to him. In Matthew 4.10, it mentions, Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and him only. And in Mark 12:29, the most important one, answered Jesus, is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Isa alayhi salam never claimed to be God or part of a God. He never mentioned Trinity, nor did he appoint a church to entrust itself with reshaping the faith and reinventing the law. The deviation started with Paul and some others, leaders, clergy, and philosophers, centuries after Isa alayhi salam's departure. Christianity as we know it today was reformulated with the concept of Trinity, centered around uh, about Isa salam, who was thenceforth called God or begotten son of God, the sacroscant church of Christ talking and acting laws in the name of God, the story of crucifixion and resurrection from the dead, original sin and atonement. And this is mentioned in their books. So it was in the 7th century CE when Rasulullah was sent by Allah that there were only a few groups of followers of the original message and teachings of Isa salam. The Injil revealed to Isa salam was no longer existing in any form as was the case of the Torah of Musa salam before him. They were replaced with the Old and New Testaments written by different human authors, selected and sanctioned as holy by the church councils, several centuries after the departure of Jesus. It was high time then to re-establish the eternal guidance of the Creator to all humanity, but this time in a final eternal form through the glorious Qur'an 
and the detailed teachings and living model of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Isa alayhi salam prophesized the coming prophet whose universal message will stay forever. In John 1.27, he is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Also in John 14.16, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. There are plenty of other descriptive, uh, definitive descriptions that fit only Rasulullah to be cited from both the Old and New Testaments. And here are some criteria for a true prophet, because we know that there over the time in history, there have been and there will be many false prophets. But here are the criteria for a true prophet. He should bring signs or proofs that are far beyond human capacity. His message should be shown to emanate from without himself. He should carry his mission to the end in spite of all obstacles. His message would be supported by God to victory over his enemies. Applying these criteria to Rasul sallallahu alayhi wasallam, we find that the main proof he presented is a living miracle, the eternal word of Allah, the Qur'an. The Arabic text of the Qur'an challenges all generations to produce anything as perfect. Even Rasulullah sallallahu own sayings are very different from the Qur'an. The scientific precision of Qur'anic references to natural phenomena, for example, the wisdom of its decrees are far beyond the human knowledge and culture at the time of revelation and for several centuries to follow. Secondly, the message and details the text of the Qur'an did not emanate from within but from outside Rasulullah And this can be proved by the way he was addressed in the extraordinary Qur'an. The Qur'an repeatedly reminded and drew the attention of Rasulullah to his obligation towards Allah, the revelation, the believers, and the unbelievers. Rasulullah was also repeatedly exhorted and warned against yielding to temptations and pressures surrounding him. The Qur'an also has admonitions directed to the noble Prophet in some situations. So again, these are reminders of the beauty and the purity and the authenticity of the Qur'an. We share that, that it may strengthen our faith and that it may be a means of guidance for those who are not yet Muslim, but who are, inshallah, seeking the truth and seeking the purity of faith and the monotheism. May Allah guide one and all to the beauty and the purity of Islam. Ameen. Jazakumullah khairan for joining us on this week's edition of the program and to our guest, Mu'alima Farhana Haturani, on the topic of Muslim women, divorce and their Islamic rights. To join us next week for our program, our weekly program. And remember, all programs can be found on the podcast section of Radio Islam's website. Simply search the name of presenter and you'd be able to access the archives of past programs. That's all from me today with you. May the rest of your weekend be restful and peaceful and Allah place plenty of barakah in your ibadah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.